Okay, so we're in Mark. We've been in Mark since September of 2010. This is the last week for Mark. Last week. I think I've preached, I was trying to add it up, over 60 messages from Mark. And pretty sure that we will be in 1 John next. 1 John. If you're new with us this morning, this message, and even if you're not new with us, I'm just going to tell you now, this message will be very different than any other message I've probably given. Because typically what I do is I work through the text, we look at the text in detail, we simply move from one section of Scripture to the next section of Scripture. And by the way, beloved, I think that's helpful to do because what it does is it forces us to deal with whatever's in the Bible. It forces us to not just be able to skip over it, the hard parts that are difficult or a pastor doesn't want to address. This is one of those sections that is rather difficult. And we're going to be looking at it in a different way. I'm really, in, As we move through the sermon, I think you'll understand what I'm saying. So, if you're new with us this morning, come back. This is not typical. Come back next week and get a second glance at what's going on here. Mark 16. Mark 16. Page 853 if you're using those blue church Bibles. I've entitled this message, The Disputed Ending. The Disputed Ending. Have you ever watched a movie or a TV series and thought that the ending or the final episode should have been different or better already? Some people, right, lost, some Lost fans in here, that the ending was just terrible and, and you, could have, you could have certainly wrote a better ending? Sometimes the ending is really just not what we hope for, right? Just kind of a letdown. Leaving us disappointed and really wanting a little more. Well, our subject today is the ending of Mark. The ending of Mark. To be specific, it is the last 12 verses of Mark. Verses 9 through 20. An ending, beloved, that many Bible scholars, and I'm going to speak a little slower maybe today because I want to be clear and and not confuse anybody. An ending that many Bible scholars now agree was actually added to Mark's original ending in order to supposedly make it better or that is to make it more complete, resulting in the last chapter of Mark being a little longer than he originally wrote it. So, all of you, some of you, maybe that's the first time you've heard that and there's some shock. So does that mean there is something in our Bible that shouldn't be there? Because that's what it sounds like, right? Something that's not authentic. Well, before any of you jump to any conclusions, let's work through the issue together. Can we do that? We'll just move through this, the situation here. And before we get started, I want to share a few reasons that I struggled to write this message this week, more than I normally do. I struggle every week because I believe I'm handling the very Word of God. And that's a very serious responsibility. But this week, more so. And here's why. Many of you who have been with me know that I, I try. I work very hard to make things plain. To make them plain. To make them understandable for everyone. But this is a complex issue that is not easily made simple in 45 minutes. That's number one. Two, I also work very hard, even though some of you say I don't, Samuel, I also work very hard not to put people to sleep. (laughs) And the details of this subject might sound uninteresting, but I promise you they are not. They are not so I hope you will listen hard. Three, as I was writing this message, it was getting longer and longer and longer. And you all know that have been here that I have a hard time just staying within the time framework that I am allotted every week. So what that means is I had to be very selective. And I couldn't include everything I wanted to say this morning. Fourth, I wanted to tell you that I am confident that the Bible that I have, that you have, is trustworthy. I am confident of that. I believe that it is absolutely the Word of God. That's why I preach from it every week. That's why I have centered my life around it. That's why I exhort you 
to center your life around it, to come under it, to obey it. So, knowing all that, I want to be very careful during this discussion to not leave anyone in here with the impression that it's unreliable or defective because that is absolutely not true. And I would die on that truth. So are you ready to get started? A few of you. Okay, excellent. For the rest of you, just join along with those that are next to you. And let's read the disputed text. Okay, let's read it. It's Mark 16, verses, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, page 853 in those blue church Bibles. We're using one of those. Reading from the English Standard Version, the text reads, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, after these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Then they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God, so they, I said that wrong, so let me say it again. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. If you have your bulletins, on the left-hand side there's an outline, very simple outline you can use to follow along. This morning we are going to briefly consider the issues regarding the, quote, longer ending of Mark so that our knowledge of and confidence in the Bible might increase. Might increase. The outline, like I said, is very simple. First, we're going to look at the controversy. What is the controversy over these final 12 verses in Mark. And from the controversy or in that, we will see the external evidence and the internal evidence. And then finally, we will simple, simply talk about the conclusion that we can draw from the evidence. Okay? Very simple. First, the controversy. Here's what I want you to do. I mentioned this last week and said that I would explain it this week. That's what I'm doing now. Look back at your Bibles. Hopefully you have a Bible in your lap. If you have one, you can pick up one of the blue church Bibles around you. Look at the Bible and look between verses 8 and 9 of chapter 16. Look between verses 8 and 9 of chapter 16. Now, every translation is a little different. But the way this issue that we're talking about this morning is noted or highlighted, as I said, varies in each translation. The way it's noted in the ESV, that's the translation, English translation we use here, you're going to find this note between verses 8 and 9. And this is it, what it says. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. I don't want to explain that right now. We're going to. I just want you to see the evidence, the text, the notes that are there. That's what it says. Now, in the NASB, that's the New American Standard Bible. Maybe you have that translation you'll likely see, or maybe another translation, a small number or letter next to verse 9 in your Bibles. That will refer to a note that's in the margins, either at the bottom or on the side or in the center column. And in the New American Standard Bible, the note there for verse 9 through 20 says, Later, MSS add verses 9 through 20. MSS is an abbreviation for manuscripts. Okay, so we've been told two things now. The ESV says, listen, earlier manuscripts, that means those that date farther back, do not include verses 9 through 20. And later manuscripts, those that are 
farther along, not as old, add verses 9 through 20. Additionally, the New American Standard Bible points out that after, and you'll see this in there if you have that Bible in verse 20, another ending, another ending, and it's only two sentences, and it's found in a few manuscripts, usually right after verse 8, but sometimes just connected with this other ending, verses 9 through 20. And the shorter ending reads like this. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So we have this account of the resurrection in verse 8, and in one manuscript at least, that's the ending and then nothing else after verse 8. We call that, in the manuscript world, the shorter ending of Mark. In the NIV, in the NIV, New International Version, maybe a lot of you have that translation, it has this statement before verse 8. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses, witnesses, that means other translations or other versions that are very old, do not have Mark 16 9 through 20. Finally, how about that good old New King James? Okay, that's what I grew up on, was the New King James. Possibly you'll see this in the center column of the New King James, but there'll be a a little letter or a note or a number next to verse 9, and it's taking you to this note somewhere in the New King James on that page, and it says this. Verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in NU, I'll explain that in a second, as not in the original text. They are lacking in Codex. Codex is a book containing ancient manuscripts. That's all that means. A book that contains ancient manuscripts. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. And that's what the New King James says. The NU is an acronym, and believe me, don't, you don't have to write this down, I just want you to listen, because I'm going somewhere with this, trying to present the evidence to you so you can understand what's going on. The NU is an acronym for the first book, which is Nestle Allen Editions, and, that's a, and then the other one is the United Bible Society's edition. So they, the Nestle Allen Editions, they take the N, and then the United Bible Society's edition, they take the U, N-U. That's how they refer to it. They're always trying to save space, okay, in the Bible, to save printing room when they're making notes. These two sources are the Greek texts that have been compiled that all, for the most part, all modern translations use to translate into other languages that we have today. The ESV the NIV, the NASB, all modern translations refer to as a source text the NU. By the way, it is also the standard Greek text for scholars who study the New Testament in detail. And what the the New King James is saying is in the NU, when you get to Mark at the end, there are brackets around verses 9 through 20 alerting you to the fact that in these manuscripts... Old ancient manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, those verses do not exist. In the King James Version, now if you don't know the difference, so a lot of you are getting, I know, an education this morning. Some of you might appreciate it. I hope you appreciate it. I don't know about the rest of you, but the King James Version, okay, that's the one with the these and the thous, and it's that old English kind of style. And, and remember, eventually we came into the New King James, which basically took the King James and, and made it a little more readable by putting it in modern-day English at the time. The King James Version, which was the Bible for Christianity for a very, very, very long time, has no note about verses 9 through 20. It has no note. Only the New King James does. The reason for that will be clear in a moment. So you with me so far? Okay. What is this all about? What is this all about? Jeremy, why don't you just skip over this stuff and move on to another book? 
Because it's there for a reason, beloved. It's there for a reason. I want you to see it. I want you to be students of the Bible. Not just listen to some guy talk up here and just accept whatever he says, but to understand that book that you hold in your hands. These notes in our Bible take us into the world of ancient manuscripts. Ancient manuscripts. These are the documents that underlie the Bible that you may be holding in your, in your lap right now. In case you didn't know, no one on the earth possesses the original written texts of the books of the Bible. No one possesses that. They are gone. These are referred to as autographs. These original manuscripts, originally written by the biblical authors. The first document created by them, autographs. Instead, what we have is a tremendous amount of handwritten reproductions or copies Handwritten reproductions or copies commonly referred to as manuscripts dating from the early 2nd century, so approximately A.D. 135, okay? A.D. 135 to around 1200 A.D. Those are the copies that we have in our possession. Now, remember, there were no copy machines back then, okay? No copy machines, and the printing press did not come into existence until the 15th century. So everything had to be reproduced by hand. We currently have over 5,000 5, Greek manuscripts or copies of some or all of the New Testament. That is Matthew through Revelation. 5,000, over 5,000 copies. And if you include other translations or versions of the New Testament that are ancient other than Greek, that number reaches 25,000 ancient copies. 25,000. One writer referring to the Bible's manuscript evidence wrote this, The more copies we have, the better we can compare between them and thus know if the document we now read corresponds with the original. It is much like a witness to an event. If we have only one witness to an event, there is the possibility that the witness's agenda, or even an exaggeration of the event, has crept in, and we would never know the full truth. Do you understand that? When you have multiple witnesses to an event, you take all of their testimony, you compare it, and you will probably come closer to the truth than if you only had one witness to the event. So sometimes these are referred to as witnesses. These manuscripts are witnesses to the original documents. And we have a ton of them. We have a ton of them. So this brings me to the next issue regarding the manuscripts we have. They don't all agree. This is known as in the manuscript world, as textual variants. Okay? Textual variants. I promise you this will be important to you at some point. Remember that the manuscripts that we have are handwritten copies. Which means we have copies of copies. And various copiers, scribes, they are sometimes referred to, throughout the years, as the copies would deteriorate and they would need to replace them. They had no digital files. They didn't even have really quality material that they could use that wouldn't eventually wear out. They couldn't send emails, none of these things, so they had to simply continue to make copies for the church. One definition I found for textual variance, textual variance was this. Textual variance arise when a copyist, a scribe, makes deliberate or inadvertent mistake alterations to a text being produced. Okay? That's how we get textual variants in the ancient manuscripts. They either deliberately altered something or they mistakenly altered something when they were copying the manuscript. With me so far? All right. Now here, you can rest assured of this that most of these alterations 
They've all been examined. Most of these alterations are classified as minor. As minor. Let me give you an example, like different spelling. Word order. So one manuscript has this word here, the other manuscript has it on the other side. Deletion or repetition of one or more words. Okay? Minor. And by the way, because we have a large number of manuscripts to compare, these are easily discovered and corrected. They're easily discovered and corrected because we have the large number to to look at and to figure out, oh, this is obviously just an error because we have a host of numbers over here supporting that this is the way it originally was written. So, the science now behind examining these different manuscripts and trying to determine what is accurate and what may have been an error, whether it be on purpose or inadvertently, that science is called textual criticism. Okay, so I've given you two new words maybe you've never heard. Textual variance and textual criticism. Let me define textual criticism for you based on right out of the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, a book about this thick that I use on a regular basis, a very good resource. Here's what the definition is in that dictionary. The task of textual criticism is determine, is to determine which variant readings in the ancient manuscripts most likely preserve the original wording and then reconstruct a text that best represents the autographs. What are autographs? The originals. I told you that. See, I'm going to test you at the end. And basically, none of you can go to lunch unless you get an 85% on that test. I hope you're listening, guys. Textual variance, textual criticism, autographs, manuscripts. You got it so far? Okay, so that's textual criticism. Now, one writer says this in regard to the textual variance. He says, there are variations in ancient manuscripts. It's up there on the screen. Because they were all handwritten. We've already been talking about that. There were errors here and there. The good news is we know where they are because of the comparative manuscript study. See, if we only had one manuscript, we would, we would have to rely on that alone. But we don't. We have some or all of the New Testament represent, represented by 5,000 Greek manuscripts. And when you add in the other versions, in the ancient versions, you end up with 25,000 sources to look at. That writer goes on to say this about textual variants. They may put in a wrong word, put in a wrong spelling, left something out. Occasionally, they even try to clarify something. Some of these scribes do that. But guess what? We have so many manuscripts that we know when they're doing that. We can see it. It becomes very clear. Plus, if something shows up in a later manuscript, a manuscript that is dated later, and it's not in the earlier ones, we know it was added later. It isn't brain surgery. Do you understand what he's saying? If you find a, a manuscript dated in 9th century BC or AD, and it has something added in a particular text that we don't see in a manuscript that's dated 4th century AD, what is the conclusion we might be able to draw from that? Somewhere in between, someone decided to add something to that text. But because we have an abundance of manuscript evidence, we can make those determinations, the scholars who look at this and practice textual criticism. All right, here's a little more information. I know, and as I said, I want to tell you again, I'm generalizing here. I'm not going into real deep detail to save some time. The manuscripts that biblical scholars have today and use to, quote, help reconstruct a text that best represents the autographs, as we just looked at, and is that definition in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, were not available. Were not available to those who put together the King James Version in 1611. Do you understand? 
The manuscripts that biblical scholars have today and have used to help reconstruct the original autographs were simply not available. There were many available, but the newest ones that we have found were not available back in 1611 when the King James was put together. Since then, older manuscripts, older, dating closer to the original autographs, See, I'm using words and you know what they mean now. Isn't that cool? That's cool. Have been discovered, such as the ones mentioned in the note that I read earlier right out of the New King James Bible regarding Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. These older manuscripts do not do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. Quoting from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology again in regard to this topic, it says there, the King James Version became the most popular English translation in the 17th and 18th centuries. But after the King James Version was published, earlier manuscripts were discovered, which began to show deficiencies with the TR. TR, what's that? TR stands for Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus. It's a Latin term for the received text, and it refers specifically to the Greek text that Bible scholars use to put together the King James Bible. They had later dated ancient manuscripts at the time, and it is those texts, the Textus Receptus, the grouping of them, that they used to form and to translate into another language the King James Bible. Does that mean the King James Bible is defective? No. Okay? Very clearly I want to say to you, absolutely no. But it does mean that modern translations, like the ones we use here, like the NIV, like the NASB, had a benefit of additional and older manuscripts. That's what we're saying. That's what I'm saying to you right now. They had a benefit of additional and older manuscripts. Also, let me add this. There is overwhelming agreement when you begin to look into the manuscript evidence. Overwhelming agreement between the thousands of different manuscripts we have. And even when there are variances... Okay? When we take them all out, none of the text in question would ultimately invalidate or change any Christian doctrine one way or another. So let's just be real clear. You want to you dispute all the variants? You want to take all of them out, set them aside? It wouldn't make a difference to what we believe as Christians. All of that information is thoroughly supported throughout the manuscript evidence and is in agreement. Is that clear? Today, what we're simply doing is we're looking at one of the most difficult variances that happens to be at the end of Mark. We're only looking at it because I started preaching in Mark back in September in 2010 and finally, we are here. And so we must deal with the text. Okay? That's why we're looking at it. Let me continue. In addition to the oldest, and some believe more reliable manuscripts, not including Mark 16, 9 through 20, and that's a whole other discussion, some notable ancient church people, ancient church people, and I'm probably going to say this name wrong, and that's okay, because I'm not sure how to say it, such as Eusbius, Eusbius or I'm not sure. It's E-U-S-B-I-U-S. He was a famous church historian who died early in the 4th century. 4th century. Okay, so that would be 300, 300 to 399, but he died early in that century. He's quoted as saying that the most accurate copies and almost all the copies that he had access to, manuscript copies, of Mark's Gospel ended with Mark 16.8 or he would have said, ended with the words, for they were afraid, because they didn't use 
They didn't have chapter and verse references back then. So he simply said, all the manuscripts and the best manuscripts, in his opinion, ended with, for they were afraid, which just happens to be the last verse. Well, it happens to be verse 8 in Mark 16. Also, Jerome. And some of you might know Jerome. He's a theologian and historian, but he's best known for his translation of the Bible into Latin, called the Latin Vulgate. He was born at the time that Eusebius died. He also wrote that almost all the Greek copies he had lacked verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16. This is additional external evidence that we have when we're looking at this issue regarding these last verses. Additionally, I will add this quote from the New International Commentary of the New Testament. It is a commentary that I refer to. It is uh, highly held among scholars. On his commentary, William Lane, on Mark, 6, Mark 16, 9-20, these last 12 verses, this is what he writes. Moreover, a number of MSS, which means manuscripts, which do contain them, which do contain the last 12 verses, okay? So he says, a number of the ones that actually have it have scolia. Scolia is notes on the margin of the manuscript. He's saying they have notes on them, stating that older Greek copies lack them. You understand what he's saying? So even when we look at a manuscript that has verses 9 through 20, very often what we find is a note that says, hey, just to let you know, we saw older manuscripts and they don't have verses 9 through 20. While in other witnesses, so it could be other translations, other versions, the final section, verses 9 through 20, is marked with asterisk or, and I don't know how to say this word, a belly, which is, which is, and he tells you what it means, the conventional signs used by scribes to mark off a spurious addition to a literary text. Spurious means there's a question about its originality, its authenticity. Okay? Still with me? That's the external evidence, most of it. That's the external evidence for why there is an issue regarding Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, and why that ending is disputed among biblical scholars. How about the internal evidence? How about the internal evidence? Okay? What would that be? The evidence in the text. So we have evidence outside of the text. What about the evidence in the text? Are there any clues within the text itself, verses 9 through 20, that might help us determine whether it was written by Mark or written by someone else? Yes. There is eternal evidence, and there's some interesting things in the text that, beloved, when I look at it, it appears to me that it indicates that Mark did not write it. I will point out just a few of them. First, some Bible commentators, who have a lot of time in their hands, I guess, have analyzed all of the words of verses 9 through 20. There's not a lot of them, so it's not a big, big task. They've taken all of the words in the original language and found that over one-third of the significant words, taking out the words that are not important, the significant words are non-Marcane, which simply means they do not appear in the rest of Mark or they are used differently in 9 through 20 than they are in the rest of Mark. In other words, they're not the type of words or the style of words that Mark normally uses. One-third of them. That's one clue. Second, there is a strange transition between verses 8 and 9. Strange transition. Look back at the text. We'll finally look back at the text right now. Mark 16, 8 through 9. You're reading verse 8 and it says, And they, who's the they? The women went out and fled from the tomb. We looked at this message last week. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And maybe you don't catch it. But here's what one writer commentator says. The transition from verse 8 to verse 9 involves an abrupt change of subject from women to the presumed subject, Jesus, since his name is not stated in verse 9 of the Greek text. It just says he. It's just a masculine pronoun. It's just 
He. Now in your NIV, it might even it does say Jesus, but that's not in the Greek text. They just wanted to help you because the NIV is trying to help you understand who what's being talked about there. So they just identified as Jesus. But in the original text, it doesn't say Jesus. Let me say it this way. That first Greek word translated, actually if you look back at the text, verse 9, now is not the first Greek word. The first Greek word, when he rose, I know it's three words in the English, but it's just one word in the Greek. When he rose, assumes the subject is Jesus. But the subject of the last sentence of verse 8 is the women, not Jesus. That's strange. It seems like something has been just placed onto an ending. Third, when verse 9 mentions Mary Magdalene, it is as if she is being introduced for the first time. Because there he says, she's the person from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. But Mark has already introduced us to Mary Magdalene three times. First, in chapter 15, verse 40, she was at the crucifixion. Next, in 1547, she was at the burial. And lastly, in 16.1, she was at the resurrection. Why didn't he tell us that information before? Just another piece of evidence. Fourth, it has been pointed out, and this is hard for maybe you to see unless you're very familiar with the entire book of Mark, but the style, the style of the last 12 verses differs from Mark's normal writing style. One writer says regarding verses 9 through 20, the narrative, that text there, is concise and barren, lacking the vivid and lifelike details so characteristic of Markane historical narrative. It just doesn't sound like Mark. And you may even notice it as you're reading through the book of Mark, it just seems to be a little odd. It's almost like he dropped his pen, came back and, I don't know, was a little messed up and, and recorded the last section. It, it seems like someone else wrote that section from the style. Okay, so external, internal evidence. What do we make of all this? Well, you certainly will not be alone. I'm going to tell you this right now. You will certainly not be alone in the Christian world if you want to continue to believe that Mark wrote verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16. Okay? So you're not a, you're not a crazy person. You're, you're not put outside the church. This is, a, this is debated within the scholarly world of Bible scholars. And so there are many that still believe that 9 through 20 is part of Mark 16. They make their arguments that Mark actually wrote it. However, I am persuaded along with many others that all the evidence, as you begin to look at it closely, external and internal, is strong enough to prove that he didn't write it. I mean, in fact, that's what most many commentators now believe. This is a, a common, common, com, commentary the commentary I've used throughout the Mark series. It's called the NIV Application Commentary. It's a fantastic resource. They have one on New Testament books. And what it helps you do is apply the text to people in our culture. This is the end of the commentary. It ends at verse 8. Now he makes his notes about why he believes it's not part of the original text, but he doesn't even take the time to make commentary on those texts. And that's becoming more of a pattern because of this evidence, because of these manuscripts. So, why do we have these verses in our Bible then? Well, the best explanation I have heard so far is that Mark's ending, assuming it was verse 8, was thought to be too abrupt. Look back at the text with me at Mark 16.8. As we read, we have this resurrection account, very exciting things happening. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of story. So, beyond that, if you look at the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, John, they tend to record things like post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So, the ending was thought to be lacking, incomplete in some way. By the way, there are theories about why Mark's Gospel ends at verse 8. Like he died before he could finish it. 
or that the original ending was lost. But I simply take the position that he ended at verse 8. Because everything else is speculation at best. Some of it better than others, but I believe he ended at verse 8. However, someone apparently thought the ending needed to be supplemented. It just, like I said, wasn't complete. So the idea, by the way, this idea of the ending needed to, needing to be supplemented explains the shorter ending that I read to you earlier that the New American Standard Bible records for you that is found in at least one manuscript alone and in other manuscripts attached to the longer ending. Remember, it reads this way. So you have this abrupt ending, and so here's someone trying to, to kind of bring it closure. So you have this short ending that we find in one of the manuscripts, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Does that sound like Mark at all? Now, if you've been with us in Mark, you know right away, what are, that doesn't sound like Mark. Like I said, that's in a few later manuscripts. But, and then in other manuscripts, it's, like I said, it's placed with the longer ending. And, and even when you try to put those two together, they don't go together at all. One writer says this, the existence of a shorter ending suggests that other scribes tried their hand at tying up the loose ends of what was considered a ragged and inconclusive finale. You know, like Lost. The phrase, the second and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation, clearly smacks of the vocabulary and style of a later era, a time after Mark lived. They didn't talk like that back then. The shorter ending, as I said, only appears in a few manuscripts or ancient versions, but the longer ending, the one that we have today in our Bibles, was copied into manuscripts over and over and over and over again. So we do have many manuscripts that have verses 9 through 20. Later manuscripts. By the way, let me add this. Generally speaking, the content of verses 9 through 20, which we don't have time to go through this, 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 morning, this morning, the content of verses 9 through 20 can all be found in the other Gospels. Matthew, Luke, John, and even portions of Acts. So it's not as if the writing or longer ending is heretical or not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Do you understand? It's not inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. One writer suggests this as an explanation for the longer ending, and it's this, that a later scribe compiled these excerpts from the other Gospels, portions from the other Gospels, to provide an orthodox and more satisfactory conclusion to Mark's gospel is the most likely explanation. One writer goes on to add this, the inclusion of verses 9 through 20 in many manuscripts is accounted for rather by the fact that the longer ending, which must have been added quite early, was naturally included in subsequent copies of the gospel. Many of the ancient manuscripts that do, that do contain, and he's going to say it again, the thing I've already said, that do contain the longer ending, however, indicate by scribal notes or various markings that the ending is regarded as spurious addition to the gospel. So even though we have multiple copies with it, there's still this issue of these notes questioning its authenticity. So it's there and they're saying, hey, we're going to add it because we're trying to be, make sure we capture everything, but there's questions about this whether it's authentic or not, by the fact that we have early church fathers saying it wasn't in the manuscripts that they had. We even have now older manuscripts that don't have it at all. So here's... You guys all confused? Are you good? Good? All right. You're confused? All right. Don't talk to me after the service, brother. I'm tired after the service. I won't be able to help you at all. We can talk later, though. Okay, now this is it. It is issues like this. I'm glad that it's there. I'm, and, I, and by the way, notice it's not hidden. They didn't just throw it in and not tell you. They're not trying to hide anything. This isn't some conspiracy. They reveal it to you. Whatever's there, they're revealing it to you, which should give you a little confidence in, in the work that these 
men do when putting these things together. But when you investigate issues like this that force a student of the Scriptures, because that's what we've been called to be. I know we're not all that. My hope and prayer is we would be that. That we would become students of the Scriptures. But it is issues like this that will force you to thoroughly explore the process that is responsible for the, the Bible that you hold in your lap today or that you rely upon or that's on your smartphone. It forces you to look into that. Most know very little about the incredible and painstaking work that is behind our personal copies of God's holy word. Most people know very little. Right? Isn't that true? Most people don't even know the books of the Bible. And that's not a put down. I'm just this is a reality. They don't know the order they're in. They don't if I ask them how many they were in there, they don't know. They don't know when they were written. They don't really know. And sadly, when skeptics challenge the reliability or accuracy of the Scriptures, most Christians have no response. They don't know what to say. Because they've been handed the book, but they've never even really looked into what made it a book. How it became a book. They don't even know. The truth is, if you take some time to dive in, or even to just dip your foot in to the world of ancient biblical manuscripts, the world behind our Bibles, and the meticulous methods used by scholars to determine what the original writers really recorded, you will gain, beloved, I can say this, I would put all of my money on it, you will gain an overwhelming confidence that what we have is as close to the original writings as humanly possible. I promise you that. One biblical scholar named A.T. Robertson, I'm throwing out a bunch of names today because they're valid names. Maybe you're not familiar with them, but if you look into it, you'll find out what I'm talking about. He reported that the vast array of manuscripts we have has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text. What were those called? Okay, just making sure you're still with me. To accurately reconstruct the original text with more than 99.9% accuracy. Did you hear that? Because of the volume of manuscript evidence that we have, scholars can confidently say today that they can recreate or bring about the original autographs with 99.9% accuracy. That is a remarkable number, beloved. That means that this book is as close as humanly possibly can be to what the original Holy Spirit-inspired writers recorded. God's Word. Knowing about this issue in Mark this ending, it doesn't erode my confidence in the Bible one bit. Not one bit. Nor has it countless thousands of others who have wrestled with this disputed ending. Rather, investigating it assures me that the very best work has been done to create a product, if you will, that can be trusted. And that work is possible because God saw to it, through His providence, to preserve for us an abundance of ancient manuscripts that allow scholars to accurately piece together the original text. Do you understand? And I'm going to say it again. The end of Mark is an exception to the rule. It's an exception to the rule that generally there is agreement among the thousands of manuscripts we possess. Beloved, that is an amazing fact if you think about it. Over all the years, with multiple scribes, over 5,000 different manuscripts, and generally speaking, there is agreement among those different sources. That's pretty amazing. God has providentially preserved His Word for His people. Let's pray.
Father God, I know this is a probably a lot to just dump. And in 45 minutes, I've had hours and hours and, and even before that time spent looking into these, these topics, understanding exactly how it is that we have the Word of God that we rely on from day to day and week to week, a, a book that we trust and put our faith and confidence in, a book that has led us to our great salvation, reveals to us who You are in all Your glory and especially the wonder and, and magnificence of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life on our behalf for our sins. All of that we know because it has been revealed to us through the Scriptures. Father, I pray that as we look at things like this that might be a little difficult, that we wouldn't be taken back by them, but in the process of understanding even why they exist, it reveals to us the magnificence of what we have. We have, Father, by Your mighty hand, preserved for us a book that with an incredible amount of accuracy reflects what the original biblical authors recorded as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down those very words. And that is why we call it the Word of God. Father, I pray that our confidence would be built up and that our understanding of the Bible would not be simple, but that we would take the time as good students of the Bible to to look into this book because it will blow our minds. And the only way our confidence will go is through the roof as we continue to examine all that has brought it about. And Father, as our confidence in that book increases, may we continue to go to it, read it, memorize it, meditate upon it, use it as the very guide that will help us along in this very confusing world. Father, I pray that You would work in your hearts and minds of Your people that, that this book would not be left alone six days a week. But Father, Your people would begin to pick it up and, and really examine it. Because I know when they do that and I know when I do that, I am blown away every time. Father, I pray that this time would honor You and and honor Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.